Woodbridge, Connecticut, this is OPG Inspire, bringing you the latest in organizational development, strategic planning, and the tools you need to make a better world. This is your host, Robert Roach, and today we are sitting down with Laura Freebairn-Smith, partner at Organizational Performance Group, to discuss what it means to be an abundant leader. Laura, let's begin by telling everyone a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And why I care about abundant leaders. Yes. So, uh, my background includes a variety of experiences running organizations, and there's a thread through my life and my career which has been driven by the question, how can we make organizational life better? Why is it both blissful and incredibly difficult to work in organizations, and how do we get better as people within a system that is often beyond our control uh, to have more joy? but not in a disingenuous or Pollyanna-ish way. I mean joy in hard work and good output and a positive impact Mm -hmm. on the world. So that question led me to a variety of experiences. And actually, the formative experience for me was working in the Cambodian refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodian border. And that question emerged after that experience because I became a middle manager. I was running the education program for one of the refugee camps. And I was interfacing with Bangkok and our New York office, and it was complicated. And I had a 1,000 staff, mostly Cambodian, but many expatriates and Thai staff as well. And I thought there just had to be a better way. There had to be answers to my questions about managing. So I ended up at Yale with an MBA, and that gave me a brilliant education and more questions. And I left Yale, and I went to be a chief operating officer and managing director in a couple nonprofits, and along the way got my doctorate in organizational systems, was the head of OD for Yale, organizational development for Yale University, and then moved over to teaching uh, at Yale part-time, and now I'm a partner at the firm. And all along the way, my work has been with groups and with people who want to be better managers and better leaders. And abundance leadership came out of my dissertation because I'd had a work experience with a fellow named John Pepper, who was the CEO of Procter & Gamble. He came to Yale, he's a Yale alum, he came to Yale after he retired from Procter & Gamble for two years just to help sort of upgrade the administrative function at Yale. And he was such an incredible man to work with. His integrity, the way he honored people, his core values that were manifested in every question he asked and how he treated everyone in the room. And... I continue to aspire to be like him. Uh, He was humble and brilliant at the same time and kind uh, at such a deep level. Mm. And I wanted to understand, I wanted to be able to say something articulate about what those attributes were. And so I went and did my research. So that's a little bit about me and why I ended up being very interested in abundance leadership. Interesting. And so you were just speaking about core values being manifested in every question. So those kinds of um, those kinds of values and those kinds of uh, mindfulness in your speech and in the way that you're a leader. Um, how are you applying that to, to these these teachings? Of how how are you kind of bringing these new these new people in who may not understand that mindfulness mm-hmm. and uh, and showing them the way a little bit. Well, it's a funny question because immediately I thought, uh, I'm so deeply a novice at those behaviors that I'm always practicing every day Mm -hmm. and trying to stay awake. And 
yet I know I also have enough experience to be helpful to others. And so there's this weird balance that you're doing where you know you're in practice, but you're also trying to offer something that moves somebody else along that you have. So when I think it's one of the things that's particularly interesting about OPG, Organizational Performance Group, is that we use a quite holistic, integrated methodology for teaching leadership or working with our clients. So for example, I recently finished a multi-part workshop for a series for a client, and we introduced meditation practice into the first three minutes of each workshop as a way to get centered. It wasn't to introduce a spiritual practice, although if people took it in that direction, that's fine, but it was to introduce a way to stay in a calm and centered place. And so John Pepper, going back to answer your question about you know, how, this, how he, his values were manifested in every question or behavior, you could feel his centeredness. And he had a very deep Catholic spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. He was a devout Catholic. And that uh, ability to introspect in relationship to faith or larger questions, or if you're an atheist, it's even just the ability to maybe be connected to nature and to find a more centered place. And I think... OPG is particularly good at doing that in our group spaces and our workspaces. And we talk about higher ground a lot. And we don't mean that in a religious way, Mm -hmm. but going to a higher ground. Well, I know a lot of people who consider themselves really healthy, mentally healthy, but they say, I would never need meditation. You know, I don't need meditation. I'm good. (laughs) And I... I could see the same uh, kind of mentality coming from our leaders. Maybe a leader of a company would say, I'm making tons of profits. Uh, you know, my employees love me, everyone loves me, uh, and, uh, you know, why do I need abundance leadership? And so why do need leaders need to at least consider this concept of abundance, especially when they think that they're successful? Yeah. You know, what does it mean to become abundant? So that, I'm going to answer that in multiple uh, pieces. First, I want to say a little bit more about what an abundance leader is like, and then I want to talk about why leaders who are doing well need to be reflective and be working to keep transforming themselves. And there'll probably be a third piece, but let me start with those two. So the first thing is just so that everyone's clear on what abundance leadership is. So abundance leaders are people who operate from a place of uh, stability, high ego strength. I don't mean egotist. I mean high, healthy ego strength. They're confident. They trust the world. They feel there's enough power to share, that there aren't enough resources for everyone. They don't hoard. Uh, they share information. They share resources. They advocate for their employees. They take well-calculated risk. They delegate. They make sure their employees' working conditions are good. And they are acutely conscious of not taking advantage of their position. So that means it can go to questions about pay, frankly, and making sure that whatever they're doing in the world personally and what they're asking their organization to do is making everyone's lives better. It's that old cliche of all boats rising with the tide. That's one way you can know you're with an abundance leader, mm-hmm. that they are, they are making sure everyone gets better. Now, your question was, so let's say somebody, there's a successful leader. Mm-hmm. They, they're making profits. She's running a huge corporation and um, things are looking fantastic. And she says, I know all my employees love me. Well, first of all, I had to chuckle a little when you said that because <laughs> leaders have no idea what people really think. 
Right. I mean, even at OPG as one of the partners, we think we have some idea, but we don't know it all because you're the boss and you're writing the paycheck and the authority dynamic limits what people can safely say to you. So I always have to disillusion my executives, coaching clients, when they say, I know my, my staff tells me everything mm. or my staff's really happy. I say, you know, that's a planet I've never visited. So let's talk about reality and how are you getting information and how are you making sure things are going well? So an abundance leader knows that they don't know. And therefore, they are committed to the practice of always getting better because they can't possibly know that everything's actually okay. And usually, a, a very successful leader is using self-reflection not only to grow their skills, but to grow their company mm-hmm. and to have a more positive impact. So it takes this ego strength to be able to say, I don't know everything that's happening. I don't know everything that I need to know. I can always get better as a leader and my company will follow suit. Mm-hmm. So. Now, it seems that there's a lot of uh, knowledge of what you don't know in this kind of model. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, you know, is there part, is part of your, this practice also being able to tell what stage of the process you're in? Mm-hmm. Can, would I be able to say, you know, in my, in my training with you or kind of, you know, in the same way that I might be pursuing something through meditation, being able to say, okay, I have, I'm able to say now that... Um, I've opened the lines of communication to a greater extent than it was before with yeah. my employees, but I still don't know as much as I can know. Okay, right, know. right, and I, I don't want to overplay the meditation either because I want to talk about other micro behaviors and micro levers that abundance leadership, uh, abundance leaders use. Meditation is just one small example of an integrated practice. Mm-hmm. So let me talk about those micro behaviors, and then I'll talk about how you know you're making progress along the way. So micro behaviors are things like sharing the entire budget with all the staff except for salaries. That is a micro behavior that exhibits abundance leadership. Um, Here at OPG, we have the staff staff meeting monthly agenda on the wall. Anyone can add to it. That's a micro lever that says we're inclusive and everybody can have a voice. Mm -hmm. Um, Sharing the income targets for the company is another micro lever. This is, this is abundance leadership of sharing all information possible, uh, including everybody in recruitment efforts. Mm-hmm. These are all signals to people that you're an abundance leader. Being self-reflective when you're in front of the group about what you're working on. Uh, Tony Panos, the other business partner in OPG, at OPG and I, at one of the last meetings, we said we are working on transforming our partnership and taking it to the next level. And we told all the staff that. So that's, those are all parts of the practice, not just meditation. I mean, that's one, and some people, meditation doesn't work for them, but other things do along the way. But you asked, how do you know you're making progress? Well, here's the interesting thing. So in my mind, what we are working on as human beings and as teams and as leaders all the time is balancing paradoxical tensions. Everything is a paradoxical tension. I can eat too much ice cream. Um, ice cream's great, but to, if, too, if I eat too much of it, then it's not so great. Uh, somebody who is really smart is fantastic on one level, but sometimes their smartness overpowers other people. Everything has a shadow and a light side. Everything has a paradoxical pull. So going back to your question about how do you know you're making progress? Well, oddly enough, on the one hand, you have to have enough confidence as a leader to know that you're good at some of these at leading. I'm, I'm a good 
for me personally, I'm a very transparent leader. That's an abundance leadership skill I probably don't need to do a whole lot of work on, okay? Maybe I need to be better at how I package the information I share, or I need to time it a little differently. But in general, I don't have a problem sharing information. I'm not afraid to share personal information or what the company needs to share to empower people to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. So part of that awareness that you asked the question about is knowing where you're already fairly skilled and you need to make, keep marginal improvements versus, oh, that's a blind spot for me. So I'll give you a blind spot for me personally. I have very, very high quality standards for the firm in terms of writing, uh, research, et cetera. And so it's harder for me to delegate that. I can go, I go into a control paradigm and I know as the firm grows, that will choke the firm. So my growth over the next couple of years is to figure out how to train people that I trust that they will hold that quality paradigm. And they may even raise the bar and do better. Interesting. And now a few of the micro behaviors that you were listing before, I could think of leaders and some companies thinking of those as weaknesses. You know, uh, being self-reflective in front of your staff is a great example. You know, many leaders probably think that they need to be a solid base, that, that you know, an unchanging monolith. <laughs> and, <Hurrah>! and <laughs> you know, why are they, uh, you know, why do they think that way? What what brought that about in our in our uh the way that the companies are structured these days. Well, I'm I, I'm hesitating because I want to be cautious about simplifying a comp- incredibly complex, confounded situation, mm-hmm. which means that we have history to thank for much of that, mm-hmm. and we have the evolution of hierarchical organizations in the Western culture, going from churches and armies into the industrialized age, and the focus on hierarchy and the folk and the dominance of men uh, and the the uh, on a psychological level for individuals you have the suppression of emotion in men by the culture which has made it more acceptable for men at the top to not express emotion and men are denied an enormous language as a result of that and they don't always get the practice in using emotion as a tool to lead and guide and grow. Uh, women can overuse it. So I'm making generalizations. Mm-hmm. I want to be careful. Uh, these, are, these are generalizations. They aren't true for everyone. But in the, in the gender research, we know, particularly in earlier generations, that genders were encouraged to behave only in certain ways that were gender-specific. And you combine that with a long historical legacy where organizations were used for controlling resources and you have those two lines coming together and what you end up with is with this idea that leaders are in control, non-emotional. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm not advocating that you become a blubbering mess all the time in front of your staff <laughs> because that creates anxiety in and of itself. But we want to be authentic and be real. Now, if you're going to an extreme emotionally and you're breaking down all the time, then you probably need to go get some psychological help. Of course, there needs yeah. to be a balance. Yeah. So does that... Absolutely. Okay. And just the concept of using emotion to lead, guide, and grow, I, I, I can't believe how alien that very likely is to so many people who would be listening to this you know, in their workplace. So that's a really wonderful concept. And how to do that in an artful way that's also authentic. Because you can use emotion to manipulate people. Mm-hmm. So the emotion has to be has to grow out of a reflective practice where you're conscious of your emotions and how to use them to be a tool and not a weapon. Right? Absolutely. Because anger 
can be a tool or a weapon, depending how it's used. So can, so can grief, so can happiness. I mean, there's a kind of mania version of happiness that's overwhelming, uh, where you have too many projects going and thousands of great ideas coming in. So that's where self-reflection is so important. One of the questions I ask my executive coaching clients, the first questions, one of the first questions in their first session with me, I say, have you ever been to therapy? Mm -hmm. And if they say no, I know the odds of it being harder work to get them to self-awareness are high. Interesting. Versus if they've done some kind of therapeutic high level of self-reflection work, it's going to be usually a little bit easier to get going. So that self-reflection is a bit like a muscle that you practice and stretch and it gets more flexible. The interesting thing about that is I encourage my leaders that I work with to learn their physical tells about their emotions because Mm -hmm. the body will often tell you what emotion is arising. And if they can be tap into that piece of information, that source of information, they can get very fast at going, oh, I'm feeling angry. Mm, what am I feeling angry about? How do I want to transform that into a question mm-hmm. or an expression uh, of some kind that is actually going to move the group forward? Mm-hmm. So I was just in a meeting a few hours ago and somebody said something to me that really bothered me. And I said, I'm actually really angry about that. I'm feeling a lot of anger. Mm. And I'm feeling like this person actually broke some of the company rules around this. And I want to, I just have to say that I'm feeling that. And now I want to work through why I'm feeling so angry about it and get to a place where it's more productive. Yeah. So sometimes it's just naming it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being upfront about it. It's not about being emotionless because then you're not human. And frankly, you're not very interesting and who wants to hang out with you? Well, speaking of acting human, uh, I think a lot of thing, uh, think of that, that is on a lot of uh, American and on, uh, on a kind of a global stage as well, on the minds of human beings is uh, their, their own leadership and the leadership of governments and the leadership of countries. And uh, I mean, I, at least immediately myself listening to you speak, I'm hearing all these qualities that I wish that our leaders and that the leaders of other governments um, outside the United States possessed. You know, if you could spend an hour in a room with the 20 most influential world leaders, what would be the first thing that you discuss? Yeah, my mind went to, first of all, I imagined the room. Hmm. And I, the first thing I would discuss would be the rules for the room. What were going to be the rules in that room mm-hmm. by which we were going to abide to have a conversation? And I would make sure that we were in agreement about those rules. And the fact that if we couldn't abide by them, that we wouldn't continue the conversation or we would change the rules until we could till everyone in the room could abide by that set of rules for that one hour space of time. Interesting. Because you can't have conversation without structure. Uh, Then it becomes a brawl. Mm -hmm. You can have unstructured conversations, but you can't have a conversation in a completely unstructured domain. Mm -hmm. The setting has to be safe. And as a facilitator and as a guide and a teacher, it's my job to create a safe space for dialogue. So that I always go to there first, that we have an understanding about what's okay or not okay in this space. The second thing that I would start with comes out of uh, the work of Marvin Wiseboard. Maybe Marvin Wiseboard, I, I, I have to check his last name, from Future Search, work he did 20 to 30 years ago. And you start with the end in mind. What's the vision we want to have? So we don't start with the personal behavior issues with a group like that. What is it we want the world to be like? 
mm-hmm. and we look for points of agreement and maybe there's only one and then we work on that point of agreement and move forward and we try to build the points of agreement for that vision of the future so That's maybe they can all agree that we do not want children to go hungry at night that's the only thing we can agree on with all 20. Mm-hmm. And then we say, so what are the possible ways to make that happen in the world? And again, you'll have many ideas that people are going to disagree with. And if we look at the Paris Agreement, it's the result of that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. If It's beautifully written. It starts with the end in mind. And then it has four or five, or maybe it's a few more, key activities. And they're very specific and very concrete that everybody's agreed to do uh, in order to get to that vision. But you start with that end in mind. It's a very wonderful concept because you're beginning the relationship with consensus. Right. And as opposed to uh, attacking each other in the very beginning and trying to figure out your problems that way to begin, if you start from consensus, it's much easier to find your your common grounds. Yeah. So don't start with attacking somebody because they did this last year or you did this 200 years ago to my country, etc. You want to start with where do we want to be, right? Because if we go back to history... Even in personal relationships, if we use history to beat each other up, we get nowhere. We can't change what happened. We can ask, what did we learn from history that we don't want to repeat or we do want to repeat that worked well? Mm-hmm. But if we linger in the past and beat it to death, there's, there's no future there. You're living in a space you can't change. The future we can influence. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard in relationships of individuals, you know, marriages and partnerships, and even in group life, to not want to beat somebody up with history. When I'm teaching, I often share this this kind of adage, which is that if you're with somebody who's keeping a list of all the mistakes and bad things you've ever done, then you're both in the wrong relationship. One, why are you with somebody who keeps lists about you? And two, why does that person keep lists and not resolve the conflict? Mm. Why are they they keeping a list of things they're going to beat you up with? So that's the same thing you see happening in a lot of the national and international scenes, is it's just pummeling each other uh, over the past or responding to the person based on past things that have happened. Well, 10 years ago, they did that to us, so we're going to make sure they don't do that again. And we're going to block them to do that. We're certainly seeing a lot of that. (laughs) Yeah, instead of where do we want to be? What kind of public schools do we want? What kind of environment do we want? And what are we willing to do to get there? And I'm simplifying. I mean, there are people doing this kind of work all over the world. We're not special at OPG. Mm -hmm. There are lots of facilitation methods, uh, conflict mediation methods that are all working toward this restorative justice work is all about this different way of having dialogue. And I'm hoping that the world will change as a result of that as we individually learn to talk differently with each other. Well, Laura, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to possibly having you on the podcast in the future. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, Thank you for having me. From Woodbridge, Connecticut, this is OPG Inspire signing off. Everyone have a great day. Bye.